2: Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self help, self improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know how, or just some good old fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tiwari, a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist who is reframing the way we think about anxiety. Anxiety is no joke, let's face it, it sucks. And if you've ever had a panic attack, you will know how debilitating this heightened state can feel. We have so much vocabulary to describe these feelings of unease. When you really think about it, there are so many words out there, so everything from feeling unsettled to being overwhelmed or one might describe themselves as feeling a bit out of sorts to the much darker sense of dread then we might say that we're feeling worried about something and that worry might be ongoing and we also might be able to say I feel agitated about this situation so we have so many different words but for a long time it was very much a blanket term that we used to describe all of these things and that was probably stress So I, for example, was definitely an anxious child, but growing up in the 80s and 90s, before it was understood as well as it is now, I was labelled as sensitive or delicate because labelling an eight-year-old as stressed would have seemed pretty ludicrous considering stress was something that only really affected adults. It was something that went hand-in-hand with modern life. And there wasn't really much advice other than get over it, get used to it, or let it go. And so it struck me that we've see from a world that was relatively unsympathetic to all ages, in fact, not just children, but to all ages, adults and children, to one that is so concerned with people having these feelings across a wide spectrum that the treatment, in inverted commas, is to eradicate it, to make it go away. And what Tracy has observed in the work that she's done in the Emotional Regulation Lab, which is her lab, is that despite wonderful Cognitive, behavioural therapy treatments, medications for people who need them, science-backed wellness practices, great self-help books, growing awareness, and, as mentioned, a huge destigmatization. levels of anxiety disorders are actually on the rise. So despite there being more help available, more ways of describing it, more ways of identifying it, our anxiety was worse, which, for a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist, seemed somewhat bonkers. So during our conversation, Tracy explains why treating anxiety, really treating it, might mean reframing it, to stop seeing it as something we dull, numb and remove and lean into it and all the good things it can actually lead to. And yes, you might be listening to this and if you're struggling with anxiety, you might be thinking there is nothing good that comes from anxiety. But I encourage you to hear Tracy out because anxiety isn't a malfunction. It's a biological response and it's a biological response for a reason. And it's actually a very intelligent system. It's your body preparing itself to perform at peak. So the best treatment, the best practice is to make anxiety your ally instead of your enemy. And let's also consider this. If you remove anxiety, if you eradicate all those feelings that aren't so great, what are you left with? Because to feel good, you need to know how to feel badly. So this conversation is packed full of Tracy's insights from years of research as well as an extremely relevant Star Wars reference and the tools she recommends to begin harnessing anxiety for good. And I also talked to her about my previous techniques for doing live TV which involved making myself as stressed as possible with not eating, having a lot of caffeine and really getting excited before I went on air. We discussed whether that was really a great tactic. Tracy and I recorded this call via Zoom. Tracy was at her home in New York, and you will hear her dog bark a couple of times, so please don't be shocked or distracted when you hear a random woof during the call. I am so glad I was able to speak to Tracy, and I learned so much more conversation and also her book, Future Tense, which packs everything we discuss and more into an incredibly easy and engaging read. I torched through my copy. I couldn't get enough of it. So well done. So if you like this show, if you like this conversation, or you're inclined to learn more and hear more about the work that she's done... Then I highly recommend you pick up the book at your first opportunity. And it goes without saying, I hope that the link to find that book and buy that book is in the show notes. So here it is. I'm delighted Tracy is joining me in this episode. And I hope you find this conversation extremely helpful. Here she is, the brilliant Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari on The Emma Gunn Show. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari. Thank you so much. For joining me on the show to talk about something which I've talked about a lot on the Emma Gunn show, anxiety. Welcome. Emma, it's a
1: pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me.
2: And look, me, my most excellent listeners, we are no stranger to discussions of anxiety. We roll up our sleeves, we put our boots on, we get in there. But what I'm so excited to talk to you about is this What I would say is not necessarily a new angle, but definitely not one that I hear very often. And it's something that I hear often more so from people who have experienced anxiety and have maybe worked their way through it. And I don't know if that's your starting point for this position. Mm, Yes. And, you know,
1: it does sort of feel like the A word these days because it's something that I think everyone's experiencing. And it sort of is also the word we use to describe all of our uncomfortable feelings, all of the overwhelm, all of the complexity and uncertainty we face. But for me personally, it's, it's interesting. I've studied, you know, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and a neuroscientist and I've studied anxiety and emotional health and treatments for anxiety for 20 years. Um, in my personal journey, I had a few um, periods when anxiety I remember as a teenager having a couple panic attacks. I had some experiences. But for me, depression, clinical depression, was what I struggled with as a, as a teen. So in some ways, anxiety, I was brought here um, not so much because it was my personal struggle, but because I saw that all the ways that we were talking about anxiety, that we mental health professionals have been talking about anxiety for the past 20 years that I've been a professional, I feared that it was getting in the way more than it was helping. Because, you know, when I actually, well, I defended my dissertation on September 11th, 2001, that September 11th, (laughs) I was at nine in the morning before we knew that the towers had fallen, Mm -hmm. living in New York City at the time. So it was this incredible shared moment that we all, whether you're a New Yorker or anyone on this planet, I think shared. Mm -hmm. And so I was this newly minted psychologist and we saw the struggle that we were all sharing skyrocket. And so, okay, I thought mental health, this is what we need to focus on more than ever. And I put my head down for 20 years and did the science and you know ran a lab and, and did this clinical work and, and became a neuroscientist after being a clinical psychologist. And then I looked up just a few years ago and looked around past the walls of my lab. And I saw that we actually were not doing better in terms of our mental health, despite, Wonderful cognitive behavioral therapy treatments, medications for people who need it, wellness, science-based wellness practices. Uh, you know, great self-help books out there. Growing awareness, destigmatization. Every and but yet, the mystery is that we're actually have seeing higher levels of anxiety disorders, um, and what we're doing isn't working. And so, and so for me, that was the great mystery. And really, as we'll talk about the the book, um, it that was sort of my attempt. To try to answer that that conundrum and to dig into that mystery
2: is one of the things that we have it's one of the issues you think that we have more vocabulary than we had previously so uh, in fact when i was reading the final chapter of the book i thought i started thinking i should really learn this like a monologue <laughs> because if i commit this entire chapter to memory and i always have it to hand it will be extremely helpful and one of the things you point out is that 20 years ago perhaps when you first put your head down when people spoke about overwhelm, when people felt frayed around the edges, overtired, whatever you might say, they would have used the umbrella term of stress. Yes. Whereas today we might say anxiety, or I've heard, and I don't know if you hear this a lot, I hear people say, I think I have adrenal fatigue. And all of these other things that they are using to describe the same sort of feeling of overwhelm, of stress, of tiredness. Adrenal fatigue. That's fascinating. I haven't, I don't know
1: if that's made it over to the side of the Atlantic. It's a fascinating term. And you're right. I think we use these placeholder terms for every uncomfortable feeling. And that's the point because uncomfortable can also be excited, mm-hmm. can be that live that, Oh, that, or, or your gut, you know, those butterflies in your stomach or that little gut instinct you have, we're starting to label all of those feelings. I think pr- over the past 10 years, especially as dangerous as something that could potentially be this disease or this malfunction. And I think that's part of the answer to this mystery of why if we have great solutions and better dialogue, why aren't we getting better? It's because we're using these words not in granular exploratory ways, but as labeling, Mm -hmm. and then believing that this is indicating a malfunction, a disease, which means you avoid it, you eradicate it, or a failure, a failure, of happiness, a toxic standard of positivity, by the way, but still a failure of happiness of mental health. And so what do you do if you're anxious and you start avoiding anxiety? You start to actually develop a series of habits that are designed to make anxiety worse. So when we avoid our uncomfortable moments, when we suppress all feelings of anxiety, it's almost like the the white bear phenomenon. If I told you, don't think of a white bear, immediately in your mind pops up the white bear. I mean, it's a well, it's, you know, it's a well-established, you know, experimental phenomenon, but that's because whatever we allow to own us, whatever we push away, you know, that we don't have the opportunity to own it and to work through it. Mm -hmm. And so I believe it's these, these fallacies and this narrative, this disease story of anxiety that is actually getting in our way of being able to do Well, to use anxiety well, and to understand how to feel anxious because to feel good, you have to know how to feel badly, how to feel anxious.
2: I've had uh, some really wonderful people on the show including a psychologist called uh, Julia Samuel who talks about your feelings are trying to tell you something, your emotions Mm -hmm. are trying to tell you something. And as you say, if we try to eradicate feelings of anxiety, not anxiety, but feelings of anxiety, I've discussed this with friends before, and I actually get a great deal of comfort by saying that anxiety for me is like an early warning system. It's like the check engine light going off on my dashboard on my car, because it lets me know that I need to put my attention somewhere and interrogate that. It doesn't mean that I'm broken.
1: Oh, 100%. And you said that so beautifully. Um, I mean, this is really, I believe this is the core um, belief in the science that has informed the entire book for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really started 150 years ago with Charles Darwin. (laughs) I I go into some detail that not everyone is necessarily going to be fascinated with, but I find it fascinating that in Darwin's theory of evolution, it was actually a trilogy. And the third book in that trilogy was the expression of emotion in man and animals, where he argues that like, uh, the adaptation of a pufferfish, which is actually uh, featured on the front of my book, um, uh, which, you know, evolved to to, you know, grow, you know, to explode <laughs> into, a, into this spiky little ball. Many times it's normal size, full of poison to let predator, predators know this is not worth your trouble. That adaptation for survival and thriving, our emotions work the same way. Mm. And the way it works is, as you say, it gives us these emotions, give us information and they then ready us to act. And so anxiety is fascinating in this way because we think of anxiety as being just like fear, but fear roots us to the present. It roots us to this certain and present danger or threat. You know, it's like the snake is about to strike us or there's a knife to our throat. And that is the fear reaction, which primes us to, it's the, you know, once we understand that we can fight or take flight, Mm -hmm. but anxiety is very different. And it has nothing to do with the present moment. It's all about the future. And so when you're anxious, what that actually is, is this feeling of nervous apprehension of worry about the uncertain future. The future is by definition uncertain, where something bad could happen, but something good could happen as well. And it's that feeling that you, as you say, you know that you're caring about that future. And it's that feeling that, uh, that exists in the space in between where we are now, where we want to be, that there's a discrepancy and it activates and prepares us not just to fight or take flight, but to hope, to mm-hmm. persist, to become more creative, to become more socially connected, to focus on rewards. The bi- bi- the biology of anxiety is not just adrenaline. It's not just uh, stress hormones and it's not the fight or flight system. It's actually the reward system. It's the social bonding system. It's all these other things that we have not come to associate with anxiety. So we discount it and we revile it And we reject it just as another form of human imperfection that we are so committed to rejecting, but really to our detriment, I believe.
2: And it speaks to this idea of um, the vocabulary that, that we use. So I think a lot of terms, and I don't know if you agree, have been catastrophized, anxiety being one, and also pathologized. So I have anxiety, I am anxious, this is a a cemented state. This is part of my identity. And I would argue, not having done the 20 years work that you've done, that it's far more fluid. It is not, being anxious does not mean that's your personality. I think that's exactly
1: right, that this catastrophizing of the word anxiety, part of it is, again, this This not making the right language distinctions and and distinctions of understanding. So anxiety is an emotion. It's on a spectrum. Everywhere from just that pleasant little tingle of excitement to full-blown panic. But even full-blown panic is not enough to diagnose an anxiety disorder. So we have to still make that distinction. An anxiety disorder is only diagnosed when the ways that you're coping with anxiety are getting in the way of living a full life. It's called functional impairment, and you literally cannot get a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder without documented functional impairment. Meaning, I can't work anymore. I can't um, uh, go have social engagements. I can't, um, you know, enjoy time with my family. And so, really, the crisis that we're experiencing now of anxiety—that you know, rates of anxiety are higher than ever. A hundred million of us are on track to become clinically anxious in our lifetime. In the US alone, that's a third of the US population and the same stats apply to the UK. That's not a crisis of intense anxiety, that's a crisis of coping with anxiety. And so that, so when we start to make those distinctions that you that you really uh, clearly point out, I think we can change our mind about anxiety. Um, there's this beautiful study um, that uh, came out of uh, Harvard in 2013 um, by Jameson and colleagues, showing that if we change our mind about anxiety, even clinical anxiety can be relieved in a very high stress moment. So they've recruited folks who are diagnosed with uh, social anxiety. Now, when you have social anxiety, the key characteristic is that you uh, really live in fear of social judgment and humiliation. So, being, you know, so feeling that you might be humiliated, be a, make a fool of yourself, that's really the core of, of what drives some of the symptoms of that disorder. And so they invited these people in and then said to them, okay, you're going to do what's essentially the hardest thing in the world for you to do, which is to give an impromptu public speech in front of a panel of judges who were actually research assistants and trained to be very judgmental, nonverbal social cues, you know, crossed arms and furrowed brow. And you have three minutes to prepare and it's going to be on a hot button topic like the death penalty or abortion rights in the US. So this is, and a socially anxious person, it really pushes all of their buttons. It's very, diff- it's difficult for all of us. But then what they did was very interesting. They took half of the folks aside, only half um, and, and tried to change their mind about anxiety. And they said, listen, you're going to feel your heart racing, you're going to sweat, butterflies in your stomach. That's actually your body preparing to perform at peak. It's actually the signal uh, that you care about what you're going to do and your body ready ready to act. It's oxygen being go, you know being sent to your brain and you know your muscles being prepared. And um, here are a few a few scientific studies to prove that to you and to show you. And by the way, here's the whole evolution evolutionary perspective on anxiety and And so they just took you know a few mom- 10, 15 minutes, to really teach someone to think differently about anxiety as an ally instead of an enemy. Mm-hmm. The other half of the socially anxious folks, they did not teach that. And what do you know, during the public, the you know very <laughs> arousing, you know stress-inducing uh, public speech, um, when they tracked heart rate, blood pressure, they looked at the performance of, of the uh, participants. Those who learned that anxiety was potentially an ally, they had lower blood pressure, their heart rates were calmer. They perform better with less stuttering, less nervousness. Literally, when people believed that anxiety was there to help them, it helped them. And they looked more like people who were prepared to persist and and perform well rather than stressed out people from their biological profile. So this is, and this was just a tiny little shift in mindset. This was a tiny little, here's a new habit of thinking about anxiety.
2: And it had profound effects. See, that's really interesting. I was saying to you beforehand that I used to do live television. And uh, I remember someone beforehand saying, basically, the day that you do live TV and you're not nervous beforehand is the day that you should stop doing it.
1: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think to talk to any performer. And many of them will say, if I'm not throwing up in the bathroom before I go out and do my big solo, something's wrong.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and no. actually, I said nervous when I mean probably nowadays, if I had the time to think about it, I'd say, oh, I'm really anxious about this uh, TV segment. But back in the day, I probably would have said nervous, but actually I would amplify those nerves and I wouldn't eat and I would drink a lot of coffee and I probably wouldn't have slept very well because I knew that as soon as the camera was on me, there would trust and believe, there were times where there was a pause when my brain wanted to shut down, but then boom, I would kick in and yeah. Yeah. all of the prep I'd done beforehand would just come flowing out of my mouth. <laughs>
1: It's a beautiful example, and I would argue, too, that by today, if you would have chosen to label that, those feelings as anxiety, it would have actually gotten in the way because we've tarred anxiety with this brush of, of danger and of uh, malfunction and, and of, um, you know, something inside me is broken. And so instead of, okay, I'm going to take a moment and realize this is preparing me, it actually might have gotten in your way more because this language uh, that we're using is very important.
2: Well, and I only, I, I noticed this a lot on reality television, <laughs> so perhaps this is a, <laughs> a weird example to use. No. But it's um, this idea of, uh, there are a few things that can actually stop any constructive dialogue in its tracks. One of them is to bring up racism and say that a conversation mm-hmm. or something that's said has been racist. And another thing is to say that something that has been said or a conversation is affecting one's mental health. And I do believe usually that that is pinpointing anxiety more than it is depression. And I have noticed, and I have seen in real life, but I can bring up examples from reality TV where people have said, this has to stop because it's making me anxious and then things are arrested. And I think that's an interesting development because I don't think you've got anywhere. Once someone says that to you, I don't think you've got any ground on which you can come back on. Once someone says that you have to stop. Right.
1: It's such an important point you're raising. And, you know, I'm actually, I've been thinking a lot about um, the kinds of dialogues we feel we can have today. And this sort of debate about safe spaces and cancel culture and what is this about and where's the benefit and where's the detriment. And I think emotions and anxiety particular are at the center of that. So, right, as soon as you say, I'm anxious and things shut down, there's an assumption that there's harm. Mm. And, you know, I in, in, in the book, and um, and I've, I, I actually talk about this a little bit, if you go back to the history of safe spaces, it was actually developed by one of the fathers of social psychology, Kurt Lewin. After World War, World War II, he was doing um, work in um, in corporate environments, and some uh, an, an individual came to him who had been doing a lot of work in social activism and raising awareness about prejudice, racial prejudice, as well as um, anti semitic uh, prejudice as well.
2: And um,
1: oh, there's my dog. <laughs>
2: Dogs are
1: welcome. While we <laughs> have a gun show. Oh, thank you. We, uh, he's my fur baby. Um, and and so Lewin said, okay, we have this crisis right now. How do we work through prejudice and racism in the corporate environment? Let's have difficult discussions. And so a safe space was actually the opposite of how we treat them now, which, which is a place where we're protected from uncomfortable moved, thoughts. Yeah. And, and actually the idea was to get raw. So if you're um, a, a, a leader in, in, a, in, a, in a department, um, if you're a manager and you have to, you know, you're saying, okay, I know I bring prejudice to this environment. I uh, am the boss and there are these two dozen men who work uh, under me and I think they're not as smart as I am. And I, I know I feel that way and that it's a form of, of of bigotry and I need to admit to it and work through it and and let's have that difficult discussion. And I knew that in that space, I would not be canceled. Now, there was no word like that back then, but I would not be called a bigot. I would be recognized that I acknowledge my limitation and want to change. And there would be raw, painful, difficult discussions. But the research and the experience showed that through those discussions, that's how transformative change happened. Things were not shut down. They were shifted more often than not in a positive direction. And I think once we accept our difficult emotions like anxiety as being part of being human, and not damaging aspects of our human experience, we can re-engage in those conversations that will lead to better outcomes for all of us.
2: It's interesting, it's making me think about something that I uh, actually heard a couple of days ago only, and I must have already repeated it about 18 times. And it's it's how things have evolved culturally, so it's very much bigger picture. But if I think about, and maybe you can indulge me too, about when you were most stressed as a kid, I'm guessing it would have been spring, summer, exams were looming, the stress of testing. Mm -hmm. I can think about my driving test and all of those things that I brought a lot of stress and anxiety to because I cared and I wanted to do well. And culturally, we are now in a space, and it was Kanye West who said this, who said, if you say something today, you are being tested because somebody is is assessing you and they're going to tell you whether you're right or wrong. And -hmm. they're probably going to tell you in quite an aggressive way, which means that we are no longer speaking in a way to learn, to have somebody say to us, actually, you might want to consider this or show me how you did your, show me how you worked out or got to that number. We are just being black and white, right or wrong. That's it. And that is causing a heck of a lot of stress just in expressing opinion. That's fascinating.
1: Um, that link, uh,
2: <laughs> nice, <laughs> right from the,
1: from the lips of Kanye himself. Indeed. But you know, I think there's some. Well, he would know. He would have that experience because when you are a public figure, all of us are public figures now if we're on social media. Mm-hmm. And as, as you say, there's zero nuance. It's it's um, we are um, incentivized. I mean, all of these social media platforms are gamified. Whereas we are re- rewarded for certain types of communication, which rewards equaling likes and clicks and followers and reshares and all those metrics, which actually dehumanize us instead of allow us to explore nuance. But of course, it serves the, the, uh, the, the bottom line and the profit of these companies. So we're sort of in the image of what these companies need right now, which I think is part of the problem. That's a separate conversation, perhaps. But you're, but you're right now, there's not now it's, we're in such a offence, offensive or defensive mode. And how do we explore difficult feelings if we have to revert to these extremes of black or white, right or wrong? I think that's a very interesting point. And I think while I don't place the blame for all anxiety on social media or say, oh, it's a one-to-one cause, social media or digital uh, experiences cause anxiety, I think they're amplifiers. I Mm -hmm. think they're engines. I think it, um, it, it it makes us uh, travel on the surface of living and being human instead of becoming more of a messy human being in some level, mm-hmm. and causes us to, um, you know, I think judge instead of explore, um, and, def- and, and and defend instead of um, and discuss. So I think that's a very interesting uh, an interesting insight. Um, it also is about performance. What counts as performance now? Um, I started out, um, before I became a psychologist, I was actually, um, get this, of all things, a classical oboist. Some people may not even really know what that is. It's one of the most... Have you watched
2: Murders in the Building, and did you feel validated?
1: I mean, well, that was a bassoon, but it was a double-readed instrument. I love uh, Only Murders in the Building, and my ch- and we and our children watched it with us, which was probably 13 and ten, maybe a little inappropriate. So i you know, we could get into parenting discussion as well. But it was so good. Um, anyway, um, but um, but I, I think it was what was that? Uh, well, anyway, I won't try to remember shows that have featured oboists. There are very few <laughs> far between. But um, but so perform, you know, so as a as a classical musician, as a performer, um, understanding. The role that anxiety played, and in the creative process, is very interesting. And you speaking about your performance experience, you know, I think of anxiety and creativity as inhabiting the same space, because it is that space in between now and the possibilities of the future. Because creativity, whether you're, a perf- you know, whether you're, uh, you know, making dinner for your family um, or you're performing at the highest level, it's all about making something that has not yet existed. Bringing it into existence, seeing the possibility, impossibility, and anxiety is your helpmate in that because it's sending you into the future. It's allowing you to say, "Okay, I really care about what's going to happen around the bend. Um, I want it to be good. Um, I'm going to I'm going to devote my resources to that. I'm going to actually bring it." And you know, unlike other feelings that are more deactivating, like sadness or like in the in the case of mental health, clinical depression, you're no longer you, you know, there's a hopelessness. There's a de- this deactivated sort of you're not in it anymore in the way that when you're anxious anywhere on that spectrum, you're, you're, you're in it to win it. And so I love thinking about anxiety um, as a part of creativity. I love talking to creatives and performers about the role that that might play in their lives.
2: And I think as well, you pair anxiety with words that, and I think I said this right at the top of the show and we're coming at it from a new angle. I'd never really thought about anxiety being something almost like a commodity for the creative. That's how I took it as somebody who considers himself creative. Things like hope and care and how it can drive. But I guess there there were two prongs. When I was reading the book, I thought on the one hand, I can definitely think of times when my anxious feelings on that spectrum, have galvanized me, have moved me forward. And I can also think about times when, it's, when they have worked against me. And the best example mm-hmm. I can think of is in my early twenties, I got my dream job. But I was very much told at the time, like, this is a big risk for us. You don't really have the experience, et cetera, et cetera. And so for the 10 years that I was in that job, I brought anxiety into mm. every aspect of it because I wanted people who were witnessing me in that job to perceive how much I cared. And the best way I could show that I cared in addition to doing my job to the best of my abilities was to be anxious about it at all times. And now I look back 10 years later and think, yeah, you kind of screwed yourself there because you didn't enjoy your dream job. Fascinating. And did you
1: feel also that showing that anxiety was a signal a signal to others around you as well, not just
2: to yourself, but that you really cared? Yeah, I wanted them. I thought, well, if I'm presenting as highly anxious and if I'm available at 3 a.m., if I'm emailing in the middle of the night, they're going to know that I live and breathe this job and I deserve this opportunity.
1: Oh, boy, this is fascinating. So I have so many thoughts about that. Mm. I mean, one is that um, yeah, anxiety can be debilitating. I mean, it stinks. Mm. It's, I, there's nothing, there's no part of me in this book that wants to tell someone to like anxiety, to love, certainly not to love it, not even to like it. It's not meant to be liked. Mm -hmm. it's unpleasant. But, you know, and I, I quote all these, you know, kind of, you know, Darwin, I quote, I quote the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, which, you know, he's sort of the patron saint of anxiety. I opened up the book with that quote, which is, whosoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. So what that be, that opens this completely different dialogue. So I'm just sort of picking up his ball, Kierkegaard's ball. I, well, no, But but yes, in a way, I am because it even allows for the possibility that there's a right way to be anxious. Yes. So so there's that you know. So there's this first idea that um, you know um, that we you know we, thinking of it this way. But you know what 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 I'm thinking about as you were speaking as well is. That as women as well, if I may talk a little bit about that experience, we often feel, and I think, um, you know, we've all been raised, many of us, especially if we're, um, you know, a, a kind of achieving women, if we're women who are, you know, doing it all, you know, we think we're having it all, you know, that, you know, we, we can, uh, you know, in that sort of myth of uh, corporate feminism that, mm-hmm. you know, of, of a wonderful friend of mine, Rishma Sojani, has written a beautiful book called Pay Up that is about the future of women and work. Yes, please write that down. She's an amazing woman. And she talks about this sort of, we bought into this myth of corporate feminism that we can have it all, but it's just code for doing it all and putting this pressure on ourselves. So when I heard you speaking, I was also thinking about the anxiety of perfectionism, of saying, you know what, unless we just bring flawlessness to, and 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 you know anxi- unhealthy anxiety can drive that perfectionism much of the time and and it's and perfectionism is toxic because it's this unachievable flawlessness it leads to not only more anxiety and stress in a bad way and depression in this burdensome way but it actually also causes us to perform worse we act people who are constantly chasing perfectionism never know when it's good enough never know when it's excellent and there's this wonderful and, and there's this wonderful Canadian psychologist named Patrick Godreau, who uh, coined this term excellenceism as sort of the light side of the dark side of perfectionism. And by the way, today is May fourth that we're speaking, so May the fourth be with you for any Star Wars uh, uh, nerds out there and fans and sci-fi. Tracy, I am your
2: father.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was I was very disappointed when my book was not actually published on May the fourth, so I couldn't say that. But um, so wait, sorry. So back to uh, excellenceism. Um, we also know that um, healthy, um, uh, healthy anxiety drives this excellenceism, where you know that you can be that you're excellent, and that sometimes good enough is good enough. And making mistakes on the journey to excellence is part of the process. And so we can celebrate. So you were in this dream job of yours, and rather than saying I have to be anxious and perfect and show everyone that. To to allow ourselves and, and for myself having those experiences across my life to step back and say, you know what, I feel that anxiety, but I know that I can channel that to being good enough sometimes, maybe failing sometimes, but all on the road to excellence because I can get there. And that's really what I need to bring here. I don't need to be a flawless human. I'm not going to reject the messiness of being who I am because eventually, and sometimes I'm gonna just be exactly who I need to be. And so that mindset shift, I think of letting go of the dark side, perfectionism and really embracing, no, no, I'm just gonna be excellent, is is a nice transformation, like an alchemy of how we can use um, anxiety in this creative way.
2: Yeah, because it is, it puts you uh, emotionally into a place where you're in first gear, but you have got your pedal to the metal and so i mean this was 10 years ago so now i can i can really feel how how long it took to come down off that feeling of yeah. that that i that i had imposed on myself i might have been told there's there's going to be a steep learning curve but i was the one who imposed the perfectionism on myself I was well then there's no room for failure yeah, but that you know the messaging that you experience though that that that
1: culture and that context is very that that was actually a recipe for whatever tendencies we bring to that context. Mm-hmm. It's good, you know. So that mindfulness and that you know these conversations. Now we we were younger ten years ago, you know. Every, and with I think with age, you know, I'm I'm well into my 40s. I'm almost 50, and I feel like so much has shifted and changed. Just being in my 40s and just being more comfortable in my skin, where I can.
0: All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active
0: Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: Take that step back and see, wait a second. This is about them and the message they're putting on me. And what I think a lot about are young people coming up today for whom it's harder for all of us when we're that age to have that space and to distinguish and say, wait a second, that's about you. And, 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 I, and, I, can, and I can see that and see how important this is, but I can also um, have my own values in North Star in this. And it comes with practice. It's a habit learning to be anxious in the right way to learn another favorite Kierkegaard quote, the dizziness of freedom Mm. which is in anxiety. He said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. I mean, how beautiful is that? But to learn that and to ride those waves and to feel that mastery, I mean, waves can drown you, but waves can also move you forward, but you have to practice. Mm. So I really think that the more we talk about anxiety as a practice instead of a disease to eradicate, the, the more we'll be able to use it.
2: Mm. And you referenced Star Wars there. So I am going to <laughs> use that to leverage in uh, something else. So One of the things I'm sure you would have observed, you are obviously a doctor, you've been in the lab, you've been doing the work, but there's also this wellness industry that Mm -hmm. will tell you that in order to combat anxiety, you just need to sniff an essential oil (laughs) (laughs) or put something on your pulse points. I was sent this, but actually I did have a sniff of it before we started. Oh,
1: I love it. I have it right by my bedside. I love those
0: things.
2: CBD, hey, let's use the non getting high stuff in marijuana and let's use yeah. it to chill ourselves out. So there were all of these things that again, it's about not, it's about getting rid of it or minimizing it rather and sort of treating it rather than leaning into it and managing it. And yeah. I wonder, you mentioned um, Star Wars. And so it was the, the thing you talk about in the book about Anakin essentially <laughs> knows his yeah. prophecy. Yeah. And so can't live his life. In the way because he's he's always got that in his mind. And one of the other things I've observed is people leaning into things like tarot and palm reading and yeah. psychic sisters, that those sorts of things to but they are using them to help them with their feelings of unease about what might happen, which, as we've discussed, anxiety is this sort of obsession with the future, if you like, and what yeah. if. And yet there are all of these things that are kind of cropping up to help you with that, but I don't believe they are actually fundamentally helping. And I'd be interested to know what you think.
1: I think that's, that's a, a, a really central point because, and you know, the whole um, chapter where I open up with sort of the Star Wars story and the, the story of Anakin Skywalker um, is really, um, the whole chapter is called uncertainty. And I don't until the very end of the chapter even mention the word anxiety because really what anxiety is, is this, it is fundamentally about uncertainty. The two go hand in hand. It's sort of, it's, it's uh, uncertainty, dread, and hope all at the same time, and that's anxiety. And, and I think that, you know, what, and as you say, Anakin could not live with the uncertainty with this prophecy that his beloved wife, like his mother, (laughs) you know, would, would be killed, would, would die, would, would perish. And, and rather than, think about the possibility in that prophecy rather than say, well, it's a prophecy, which means unless you're a complete fatalist, there's only bad on the horizon. He didn't believe that though, because he was doing everything to make the good into reality. But without without being able to be at peace with that uncertainty, in some way of leaning in and listening to it, you, you actually completely disrupt the, the, uh, the benefits that anxiety can give you. So, you know, you mentioned sort of, the, you know, the essential oils and the, the default to numbing and soothing all anxiety. I don't want anyone to think that I'm telling you to white knuckle it through anxiety all the time because, because anxiety really, I mean, it really sucks. It feels really bad. And yes, it needs to, but that doesn't mean that we just let it run roughshod because I do believe there's a transformation of consciousness that we humans have been prepared to affect. I mean, my lab, my research lab is called the Emotion Regulation Lab which means we can learn to turn the dial up and down on emotions. We can learn to experience them, use them as information, and then do something. So it doesn't mean you have to suffer through. But what I think it does mean is that you start, and really this is the final chapter in the book as well, you start with a very simple but hard to do, (laughs) simple sort of guidelines of the first thing we have to know about anxiety, of that, that dread of uncertainty, is that we just have to start by listening to it. To just tune into it and know that it's information and not dysfunction, not a malfunction. So once you listen to it, does it? What information does it give you? Maybe it's waking up at five a.m. and having that those sort of free-floating anxiety, worried thoughts. And you know, rather than default, you know, bring out the essential oils, which are by my bedside, by the way, (laughs) uh, to sort of you know bring yourself down immediately. Just give yourself a moment to be curious about that. What is bothering me? You know, is it that fight I had with my husband last night? No, we've resolved that. And is it, you know, is it that thing at work? I was like, oh, that thing at work. You know, I'm having this huge rift with my colleague. I'm having this huge, you know, deadline that I just have not put my attention to. Bingo, that's it. That is what's going through my mind. And once I do that, then you say, okay, wait a second. I can handle that. I care about that. I can make a plan. So, as soon as, and maybe you write it down to make yourself feel better <laughs> that you're going to do it because it's 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. And you say, okay, when I get up in the morning, I'm going to text that friend or I'm going to actually start working on that, that project that has a deadline of just a few days from now. And immediately your anxiety actually dissipates. It tells you, wait a second, you're on the right track because when we listen to anxiety, we should listen to it grow and we should listen to it decrease. And that's us, and actually when anxiety increases, Dopamine, the pleasure hormone, also increases. It doesn't just happen with sex, drugs, and rock and roll with the the dopamine going. It actually increases when we plan to pursue a goal, when we are working towards something that's rewarding. That's what dopamine does. It's this little messenger neurotransmitter in our brain that helps all those brain regions that allow us to pursue goals and marshal our resources work really well. So you're anxious, dopamine spikes, right? And then once you start working towards that goal or make that decision. It goes back down again. You can, your body's actually telling you you're on the right track. So that's the first thing you listen to it. But now sometimes there's nothing to listen to. Sometimes, okay, I'm just having a panic. I'm, I'm in this, I've gone in this spiral because I have these habits or, you know, I've been, I've been sort of, I drank all that coffee two minutes before the podcast and it's really, and I'm just in this spiral. And those are the moments that we can let go of the future and actually do those things that we know help us that are part of our toolkit. To manage all those feelings because, you know, ma- yes, ma- we shouldn't necessarily suppress them, but that doesn't mean we can't exercise. You know, you know what? When I feel really stressed out, sometimes exercise is one of the first things I think might help me. Not that I'm a big exerciser, but you know, sometimes it just brings me down a notch. It, it helps me get my energy out. Or I write poetry, very bad poetry, but I'd love to write poetry. It makes me just let go of everything else except this way of thinking. Or maybe you talk to your psychologist or your friend. Or you have that nice uh, cuppa, you know, you just say, I just need have to a really nice cup of tea right now. Or whatever it is, you, you take that break. You give yourself that relief. And that's part of this process. It's, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying, yes, do that. But listen first and know when you need to do that. And then, and we can talk about this later as well, hitch that anxiety. If it is some useful information, hitch it to purpose. Help it drive you to do really well in your dream job to pursue excellence, not perfection, but to pursue really putting your best foot forward. We can connect anxiety to those purposes and goals and dreams that we
2: have. I asked the members in the Facebook group for the podcast if they had any questions about anxiety. And I think uh, one of the things was feeling that it was just something that they couldn't really change, which obviously we have discussed at some to, to some degree here, but equally when you were just speaking, I was thinking about this idea of if anxiety didn't on some level, feel good then we wouldn't do it so when you're talking about the dopamine reward system Mm, firing mm -hmm. into place yeah and, and again it's sort of going back to the thing about my job my my old job it's almost that feeling of if I feel this way then it's a good thing because I care so it's this it's it is this difficult game isn't it of sort of caring but not to the detriment of your well your nervous system essentially
1: What a great point. And, and, you know, a lot of people, and I think very rightfully push back when I, when I make these points to say, Hey, listen, there are a lot of us who really struggle with anxiety because we feel almost addicted to it because we feel we need it to be at our best. And yes, there's biological reasons for that. There's also negative reinforcement. So yes, it's that, you know, it feels good on some level, but what really feels good is when anxiety goes away. And that's what negative reinforcement is that the absence of something. So if, you know, and that's why, um, uh, compulsions, like in an obsessive compulsive kind of a way, when we're obsessed with something and we're anxious about it, when we then do something compulsively, we get, we get hooked into those compulsions because it makes that anxiety decrease just for a moment, Mm. all that discomfort. And so that negative reinforcement cycle keeps us going because it feels good to have it stop. So all of these are, you know, anxiety is, is like a powerful wave. It's not, you know, and sometimes we have to really learn how to ride it. So I'm, I'm not saying that it doesn't sometimes get to become too much a part of how we move ourselves forward. And I, you know, I think that is a danger, but I think the first step to unpacking those unhelpful habits is to first actually befriend your anxiety and realize that it is something that I can use in a way that's moderate, that is, um, that is energizing that I don't need all the time because I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to be on all the time. I don't need to because that's setting me up for failure. It's something that I can listen to and use as a source of energy, but then let go of and do all these other things and be in the present instead of in this future. You know, If you get hooked into this future mode, that's where we can start to spiral into problematic worries, into problematic obsessiveness. But you can't know that balance for yourself. You can't know that spectrum if you don't tune in first, if you don't accept that anxiety is also healthy and normal and then learn to, to actually use it. And in this almost I think of it as almost magic in this sort of alchemical, beautiful, creative way, like a palette that you have, be able to paint the painting of your life with all the colors of your emotions, all the experiences.
2: I know you've talked about befriending anxiety. I would really uh, be interested in your perspective on this, which is Uh, listening to it in a way where it's your friend, but also can it be a toxic friend? And the reason Mm -hmm. I'm asking this is because when I was reading the book, I thought, okay, let's take anxiety, social anxiety. So there have been times when I have wanted to, or been invited to something, and in the days before, it's just whirring around in my head, all the reasons why I shouldn't go. I won't Mm -hmm. be able to get a taxi, people who are there. I just create this whole thing of like, it's just gonna be a bad situation. And that I would interpret as my anxiety sort of uh, firing up about a future event. And what I try to get to is a point where I say, okay, well, I obviously have apprehension about this for whatever reason, but what if I go to that and I have the best night of my life? Yeah. But for a long time, I chose to listen to the toxic befriended voice of my anxiety rather than the hopeful, curious voice. But they were saying the same thing. It's fascinating and I think that we don't always
1: know the right answer because in that moment sometimes we have instincts. I mean anxiety is our gut also about these future situations and sometimes it's, it's your gut uh, being in, in sort of the disaster mode and the, and the threat mode. And, but sometimes you could be right about that, right? But to remember and to remind yourself, wait a second, I'm in this negative, I'm, I, I know the future is uncertain. That's what anxiety is about. And let me just remind myself that the, that the positive outcomes are possible. So when we shift, so it's not to say that anxiety is sometimes, uh, you know, you're right. Anxiety is that toxic friend sometimes, mm-hmm. but by just reframing it for a moment, we get more space and power to actually analyze, okay, if it's telling us the negative, let me shift a little bit to the right and see what it's telling me about the positive. And then I have all the information I need. Once you open that door to judge and to say, okay, is my instinct telling me that these are, I'm going to this event and it doesn't feel right, but you know what? I know these people, there's a lot of wonderful possibility here. If I'm humiliated, it's actually not the worst thing because these, all these other, you know, these other pros, all these other, um, Uh, upsides are there, then you can kind of judge. But you may also say, wait a second, I'm feeling this dread because these people in this thing I'm going to are actually not very good people. And actually, this is my anxiety telling me that they're not worth this because the 20 other times I did this, they were nasty to me. They actually were using me for their own purposes. And, And so so but again, there's no easy answer when it comes to anxiety. But you need to be curious and you need to investigate and then with practice and with wisdom and maybe with age and other things, you learn to to really listen to that anxiety better and better and better. So it becomes that best friend instead of the toxic friend.
2: One of the things I really took from the book actually is about being vulnerable with yourself, being honest, getting to know yourself, but also, and I think we touched on a few minutes ago is being vulnerable with others. And I don't know if you've ever heard the actress Kristen Bell speak about anxiety. I had a conversation with her last week when she was over here and The fact that she is so, she is like the advocate of just be vulnerable. Just say how you're feeling. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: But that can, even that, even the decision to do that or working your way up to do that, being exposing your emotions in a very raw raw way to others, even to yourself can again, I uh, I guess spark these feelings that might appear on the anxiety spectrum.
1: I think, you know, it's I had the great pleasure of seeing her perform on stage um, um, at Carnegie Hall just a couple of weeks ago. Last week. Yes, when she did, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, was that just a week? It feels like yeah, an attract- yeah. <laughs> you could tell my book just came out. Um, yeah. um, and I was so and there were outstanding performances. I mean, every, it was everyone was so wonderful. But, you know, she stood out because. To me, and she, she, of course, opened the, you know, she also opened the performance and was uh, such a sparkly, um, literally and figuratively because she had this beautiful dress on, um, sparkly um, um, opening because she looked and seemed and sounded so fully alive, so completely present, so funny, so, so vulnerable. So, you know, and, and there were a couple snafus during the course of the uh, performance and they, everyone was just rolling with it and engaging with it. Things that could have spent, sent people into this anxious, oh, my God, the mic's not working. Literally, there was one mic among seven different people at one point in the performance and they had to keep passing it. This is Carnegie <laughs> Hall. I mean, it was a, and everyone was delighted in the audience. But I think with someone like Kristen Bell and with some of these really remarkable people who show what it means to lean into that vulnerability, It it makes them. It gives them that specialness. It gives them that fully human, engaging. We say, why is that person so engaging and real and special? I I mean, I just think that's a superpower. I think that's remarkable.
2: Well, I've interviewed a lot of celebrities over the years, and when you walk into a room, I always call it the Julia Roberts effect. Although I never met Julia Roberts, (laughs) but if if you and I went to lunch and Julia Roberts was in the restaurant her energy would set the tone of that entire room and Uh, that's the Julia Roberts effect and so whenever you walk into an environment with PRs and celebrities and what have you and lots of people around however they are sets the tone because everyone else is responding to it and that was one of the easiest rooms I've ever perhaps not the easiest room I've ever walked into because she was just cool she was like yeah we're good like she was just very I don't need anyone from anyone else in order to feel good. That's happening from here, but Hey, let's have a great time together. You know, and I think that's so beautiful. And I think when we,
1: I think that's being our best self, not being perfect, not being flawless, not this sort of, Oh, we have to heal ourselves all the time. I think our best self is actually where we're just comfortable with Mm. all of that. And, and those are the people that make everyone around them comfortable. It's a gift. And, and and I think that that is really when we think I, th- I think if there's one thing I would wish from this book is to have com- that we have conversations with ourselves, with each other, that there are more conversations because of this book where we can be a little more comfortable with all of those parts of us and put others at ease. And it's this positive pay it forward experience where all of a sudden we're in this together, just like that puffer fish on the, on the cover of my book when my daughter, who's 10, she saw she said, Mama. I love this puffer fish. He's really going through some stuff. And that's how we all feel if we're all going through stuff and we're doing it and we're okay with that. We help other people go through that stuff too.
2: Yeah. It's such a, it's such an interesting thing. And it is, it is that work that one has to do on oneself. And I also think that in my own mental health journey, as they like to call it, I think the realization that, um, the switch from thinking the world is life is happening to me and the world is being a dick to me to realizing some of the time in fact more times than (laughs) you'd like to admit you're the dick is when the breakthrough happened
1: no it's right and you do that i mean there's i open i mean this i I don't think we have time to go into parenting but there's whole. you know i mean actually this book started out Actually, this book started out as a teen anxiety book. And my publisher in the US very wisely said, you know, let's broaden the scope here. But I have a whole chapter just on parenting. And in the in the opening, I essentially um, describe an exquisite detail, including a, a transcription of a mistakenly videotaped conversation I had with my 13-year-old son Covey, um, that of being a dick to my son, of being a complete. I mean, type A, rejecting everything I'm telling you about anxiety, I did the opposite because I wanted that boy to learn how to ride a bike because I thought it was, I was anxious that he was being anxious about riding a bike and what healed that. And, you know, I try to document as many parenting fails as I can all the time, but also in this book, because, because the big message about a parenting fail is that we can correct it. There are very few things we do as parents that aren't rep- repairable, that we can't repair and actually grow stronger as a result of. So, you know, I, I essentially um, thought I was giving my son tough love, but really just criticized him for being scared about riding a bike, told him to man up, I mean, in no uncertain terms. It was, re- it's exc- I mean, I read that, I go and read it once in a while, what I wrote in, in the book and I just burst into tears almost every time because it was so terrible. But the beauty of it, is that I, you know, and I recorded myself saying to these things to him by mistake. And I didn't realize I'd done it otherwise. Played it back. I played it back to him. And I said, Bud, you know, this was about me. This was my mistake. You know, I didn't say I was being a dick to you, but <laughs> but I, I essentially did. And I said, you know what? It was about me, not about you. Of course it was, of course she would be scared. Of course she would feel this way. And you know what? When you're ready to ride a bike, you're going to ride a bike. I know you have what it takes. And, and it literally shifted everything. And it showed him that we could work through this terrible, painful thing. And we could still come together. I didn't have to reject myself because of it. I didn't have to reject him. He learned what it meant to go through those feelings on both sides together. And it was the, one of the best parenting experiences I, I, I've had as a result of, being, of it seeing how I was being a real jerk in the world
2: by a mistake and an accidental recording oh, it's a made all the difference. I'm curious. I know that we are drawing to the end of our time together. it feels like we've only been, I honestly could talk to you for another four hours, but that's I'm fair. curious about if you, if you have any advice for people who, when it comes to the call coming from within inside the building, the calls coming from inside the house. I feel like a kind of that's, that's a job that you can assign time to and you can work on privately, but I think anxiety being triggered by others and not always being able to say, well, this made me feel like this because of such and such. I wonder if there is a way of dealing with outward criticism uh, or or just life. And Kristen says it actually, and we talked about it when she came on the show, it's just like, as soon as I realize people don't like me or criticize me, I shatter a little bit. And mm-hmm. whether there is a way, and that obviously might trigger somebody's uh, response and anxious response to that. I wonder if, Again, that's just the work that one has to do from within to Mm -hmm. put up. It's this this fine line, isn't it, between being vulnerable and being open, but also having boundaries. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, that is the world. And I think it's
1: always been perhaps from prehistoric, from the time humans, you know, walked upright, (laughs) you know. But luckily, you know, one of the triumphs of human evolution, along with the opposable thumb, Um, is our ability (laughs) to think into the future and anxiety is our helpmate in that. So, but it also gets in our way. Right. And so in those moments, you know, listen, I mean, uh, you know, so many of us probably listening to this podcast, I know I count myself as being incredibly privileged in having a life that I have relative control over sometimes uh, in which I've been able to make choices, which, you know, and there's so many uh, of us either at points in our life or just who have lives where we can't just say, oh, I don't like this context. I'm leaving it. Right. And so what, you know, so what do you, what do you do with that? Um, And even when we are incredibly privileged, we have those moments all the time where we can't really change what's happening. But when we take a moment and think of anxiety as actually our helpmate in that, of figuring out what to do, that's where we can start to, I think, find the best road forward. So for example, uh, you're in this, top, what, you know, objectively is a toxic environment that you're around people who are constantly criticizing, you're telling you, you better you're not really worthy of this, but you better do it. Right. So, so there's two things. One is that anxiety um, can tell you, um, okay, um, I'm not going to be able to live up to these standards. And that's the unhelpful part, right. And anxiety could also prepare you to do your best, but after a while, and I've had lots of friends and in my own life, after a while, if anxiety is telling you day after day, after day, that this is not a great environment for you. And you're doing the work because anxiety, you have to listen to it. It's like the smoke alarm telling you your house might be on fire. If you don't just suppress it and you start doing that inner work, right? You'll handle it better. But after a while, you've done the work, maybe um, it's really hard on you and you're seeing a psychologist or um, a psychiatrist or a counselor um, or a coach. And, and you're saying, you know, I'm still feeling really like poisonous every day. You know what? Maybe. Maybe it's the context, you know, because you've been, you actually are taking that as information. If instead you get right on anti-anxiety meds and say, I just have to white knuckle it through you, are actually preventing yourself from listening to that signal. And you're not allowing yourself to develop those new skills to do the work. That's where the, uh, you know, and sometimes we do need medication to bring us down to baseline, but medications were should, and the science shows us should only really be used in a more short-term way and complementing some other kind of therapy or approach so they can work synergistically. If instead we say, this is toxic, I'm going to just numb myself and nu- white knuckle through, that's not using anxiety. Mm. So I think, and, and sometimes you need to leave that environment if you're listening to your anxiety. So um, I think it's this constant, but it's a curiosity and exploration and a refusal to just reject anxiety that can allow us to find our way through. That's why it's a helpmate. Because it's going to be a roller coaster. It's going to really stink and feel terrible sometimes. But we just keep riding it. And we will get to a better outcome for ourselves if we do.
2: Mm. It's I described, I have a very good friend who uh, lives in New York, actually. And we WhatsApp a lot. And a couple of years ago, we were having discussions in the middle of the night, well, my middle of the night, about anxiety. And we decided to call it a superpower. (laughs) Because... Ah! Head of the curve <laughs> because we were like let's stop seeing it as a bad thing let's see it as like you know having if we were really, if we were in a Peter Jackson Jackson film or Harry Potter we would we would have the gift of foresight in some sort of weird way oh I love that so much <laughs> well so did it help to have that conversation what do you think it helped to have that conversation and reframe it as and reframing is essentially this entire book this entire conversation about how to essentially understand anxiety so you can reframe it and stop pathologizing and catastrophizing it and seeing it as a bad thing that needs to be eradicated. And I think seeing it as something that is of huge benefit, like, okay, Kristen Bell can sing, you've heard her live, like that woman can sing, that is a gift. I choose to see my early warning system that does seem to be quite uh, acute and astute. I choose to (laughs) see that as a really positive thing. that that other people don't have and I feel lucky
1: to have it oh my gosh you're so fully alive when you can tune into people there's so many people who go through life where it's almost as if there's this film over their eyes and of course that comes at a cost it can be very painful to be so attuned but that is an incredible gift to be really have that emotional granularity to to experience all that
2: that's it's a remarkable gift Well, also in the book, you talk about this reaction to fire and what you would do. And I remember, again, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about when I had uh, training at school about what to do in the situation of a fire. And I didn't (laughs) and I didn't know this. And this is this for me is sort of the physical representation of what I really took from your book, which is if you uh, go to a door and you think inside that apartment or home might be on fire, You touch it with the back of your hand because if you touch the hot surface with the back of your hand, the reflex is that your hand will shoot away. Mm -hmm. If you grab the door handle as you normally would with the palm of your hand, you will grip it tighter.
1: Mmm, what a beautiful analogy or metaphor. I I, probably metaphor.
2: (laughs) So for me, this reframing is basically switching your hand around when it comes to how you live with anxiety, and it you it your hand comes away from the distress. And you protect yourself.
1: May I? Um, may I will cite you, but I'd love to use that uh, <laughs> metaphor. I think it's beautiful because it also, you know, it's also about this engagement. It's not mm-hmm. saying, well, you don't walk, you know, it's not that you don't walk up to the door. It's, it's, it's that you do it wisely. And, and, you know, and just like you with your friend. And the other thing that anxiety does is it actually, be, it, it spikes oxytocin, which is a social bonding hormone. So there's a biological substrate. It actually primes us to seek social support. And what is the most powerful remedy for problematic, debilitating anxiety? It's drawing on others. It's drawing on that, that love and that social connection. We evolved to outsource, do emotional outsourcing, and actually use the tribe to, mm. to, help, to help navigate whether the house is on fire or there's a challenge and a bump ahead, but to move into the future together. We did not evolve to move into the future alone.
2: Mm. And also one of the other things is that it's the part of the brain, like, I think it's the opposable thumb evolution, the comparable that if we didn't have this ability to look into the future and be anxious, we also wouldn't be able to daydream. And Tracy, I would be no one if I didn't daydream. Same, same. I mean, really with guns and roses. I have done so much in <laughs> my life through my, through my imagination. Oh my
1: gosh. I need to hear more of those stories. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> well, you, I mean, and, you know, it's funny. I think that we would still be living in caves if it weren't for anxiety. We'd be sitting there. That we would have maybe figured out fire and our bellies would be full. Like most of the time we'd be like, OK, what, what do we need? We don't need really civilization. We don't need stories. We don't need art. We don't need any of those things because we wouldn't be thinking into the future and anxiety would not be helping us along the way.
2: I have loved speaking to you. I know that we've come to the end of our time together. I could talk to you for another four hours easily. Let's do that dinner. Kristen Bell can come to you. (laughs) Let's invite, let's invite, let's do it. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. Listeners, the links to Tracy and the book will be in the show notes. Have you done an audio version as well? Yes, it's out. Yes. Great. Because I think the audio version is going to be a winner because having your voice, which I'm sure listeners will have acknowledged during this call, is very soothing and calming. Having you explain, the read the book, I think will be its own medicine.
1: Oh, Emma, you're so sweet, but it is the wonderful um, voice, um, uh, I guess, actor, no, reader. What is the professional voice, folks? Eleanor Caudill, who's wonderful. And she's actually voicing my book. But I figured that if we get another edition, I'm going to go for it. But I really wanted to put it in her wonderful hands as a first step. But thank you for saying that about my That's I have a little bit of vocal fry. I think
2: I sound very New York this morning. but <laughs> Oh, I love a bit of a New York vocal fry. It's all good. I, I, I do love the East Coast. Um, oh, my gosh. The links to you, the links to the book will be in the show notes. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Emma, I'm so grateful. And what a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time. Hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast@gmail.com. At I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter, where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.